All right, here we are, uh, season two again, episode two, I think, with Noga Rosenthal, the GC at Ampersand now, but a long, 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 long ad tech career. Yeah, no, but she's an OG, man. Like, she's been at it a long time. I, she's a... Uh, She's been in a lot of places, but over a big period of time, had an interesting career, man. And she knows her stuff. She's very technically sound, but also can like translate it into like common commonese. You know, like it's, she, she's good. She's been a CPO and a general counsel. Mm-hmm. And a CPO at Epsilon, just a huge company. She was, um, you know, GC at Zaxis, and ten years the GC at the Network Advertising Initiative. Tory body 10 years there and um and she also happens to be one of the people uh you know you're another one that i that i ping about personal work questions you know she happens to be that moral center you know focused person that i go to for advice good friend great lawyer great person um one of the best Truly. And she's humble, man. Like, she's, like I've never seen her be braggadocious. I mean, she could be. She's done all the things, but she's like, she carries herself very humbly and very quietly. Like, what's yeah. the word I'm looking for? She's like quietly powerful, you know? Like, um, that, that's kind of, I think, how I perceive her. Yeah. yeah. It's got a, a ton, ton. I remember hearing her speak once before I knew her and just thinking to myself, she's so smart. How does she know? How does she know all this? <laughs> you know, all this—the blending of tech and law and, and advertising—and and, uh, you know, it's just super thoughtful. Yeah, and I'll caveat it because what I just said, because she's quietly powerful in the sense of she doesn't mince words, she doesn't speak unless there's something important to say. But when she does, she's not quiet. You know, she's very like no sitting on the sitting on the NAI board with her and others. Um, important voice in that room exactly like she's a strong voice when it's time to to give an opinion or make a recommendation or or, or, or drive an issue um, and otherwise she's just not going to waste your time to chit chat like the opposite of me you know uh, well, <laughs> like, this was a great conversation with her so i'm excited for people to hear it but. yeah cool here we are season two the data protection breakfast club with our good good friend noga rosenthal who's the GC at Ampersand and Chief Privacy Officer at Ampersand. We chose Don't Stop Believing, classic journey tune. Um, Pedro, go for it with your, your 80s question. You tee it up. Uh, journey's an epic, epic, epic uh, band. But anyway, um, Noga, so we were talking before during pre-production <laughs> about this and that. And I heard you brought with you a uh, really fancy piece of 1980s technology. I wanted to see if you'd show it to us. Because, uh... You're receiving a phone call? Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> like how big the phones were? Yeah. Uh, can, I, is, um, can I have to give it back to my kids? <laughs> I think Zach Morris's phone. That's the classic Zach Morris phone, man. Um, Pedro, because you're from Miami, there's a great poster that a friend of mine who grew up in Miami had, and it was the Heat, a poster of the Heat in their first season when they came to Miami. And, and what's the guy's name who was the, it was like Pat Riley in a white suit. And it was like Ro, Rod Rosenthal, like somebody with one of those phones. That- Oh, uh, the first coach, uh, was it, Ro- it was Rosenstein? Some, I don't remember his name. It's, yeah, not yeah, Rod, yeah. it's not Rod Rosenstein, but-, but <laughs> Rothstein? I don't remember his last Ron, name. Yeah, Ron, you're, you're on to something there. Yeah, maybe it's Ron Rothstein. But anyway, he had the huge phone in the poster. There was the whole team, <laughs> and they're like on a dock with a Ferrari or something. And like Rothstein's got the, the, the huge phone like that. Well, my recommendation is whoever does the production on this needs to find that poster and flash it on the screen. But, um, you know, I was, a, I was in kindergarten when the Miami, it was Ron Rothstein, by the way. I there you go. <laughs> I used the power of search. Um, uh, but anyway, um, I was a super fan of the Miami Heat when they first started. And I remember that early, early team. I think we didn't even win 10 games the first year. But anyway, I've been with the Heat since they were terrible. And this was the 80s. 
So now that we've got some uh, success, I, I can definitely attest to not being. Okay, you said you said that you wore headbands a lot in the eighties. Yeah, yeah. What else? What else? We're all we're all pretty much the same age. What what else did you rock in the eighties? Like, what was the what did what were you? The color, like, <laughs> terrible. Like, are you wearing roller skates? Please say yes. I was an amazing roller skater. I had a uh, so Pedro I was into roller skating I had a my fifth grade birthday party was at, was at Orchard Skateland wow. um, I invited my whole class and I told my daughter this story my my almost five-year-old daughter this story and now she makes me tell it to her all the time on repeat oh. tell me the story about when you turned were nine turning ten and you had that party at that roller skating place that's my favorite. We 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 used to dance. There was a lot of dancing going on on the roller skates. Well, I'm gonna say this. I think at the next IEPP Global Summit, whenever we finally have one in person, I want to see you guys race on roller skates through the hotel lobby. This is a requirement. <laughs> We're gonna. It's gonna be a I hit. Settle. I would settle for just seeing you both. In person. Yeah. I miss everybody. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's 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 go. We don't have to go all the way back to the '80s, but but let's go back a little bit, uh, like a little bit. Noga, like we can talk about DLA if you want, but I'm more interested in talking about Sotheby's and what that was like for you, and when you joined Sotheby's, and uh, and and what that was like to join that organization as an in-house lawyer, and and then we get into privacy later. But but I was interested. Sotheby's was really interesting. I was there, I think, for two or three years. And I, you know, I learned just really basic, like just how to be a good lawyer there. But you you lost a sense of reality also. Like you'd go to the auctions and there'd be a Picasso for sale. And people would raise, like literally they had the paddles, they would raise it and go up by $10 million each time they raised the paddle. And you just lost a sense of like what ten million dollars really meant. Um, sort of helpful. It, it's sort of helpful in contract negotiating. A hundred. Because in my first job, we we would do the the deal could be a hundred thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars, or five million. The indemnity is pretty much the same. <laughs> it's not that much different. Yeah, here, I mean, you know, there were things like, uh, you know, was the art stolen? You know, what, you know, what did it have uh, ivory in it? Or was it from a country that wasn't allowed to be? Money laundering was a big one. Um, so there were a lot of really interesting issues. Um, and it was just, you know, the people that I worked with also, you know, there were people with like the last name of like, you know, Pillsbury, Merck. Um, so, you know, names like industry titans. So how'd you get hired in there? Who was the GC and what was the like team there? So I got hired by Don. I'm actually by subordinate of Don Pillsbury. who was a GC at the time. Um, He's since passed away. Um, But I worked for the associate general counsel there. Um, There was, and I was again in the more like, like contracts position, commercial contracts position, helping bring in the art. Yeah. It was interesting again. So much cooler than privacy law. I could talk about this for an hour. <laughs> I it really, I mean, you know, listen, privacy is so interesting. I, for me, part of, I, actually guys, the coolest auction I did, there were a couple, but one of the coolest was we um, auctioned off Martin Luther King's papers. Oh, wow. And I, like, I get so emotional. We, you, we actually had one of the books that he had when he was um, jailed, where he wrote on the side, I have a dream. So you could see, like he was processing, he was thinking, it was just so powerful. Um, And luckily his papers got sold to a museum out in Atlanta. So, you know, it went into public hands, but at times I I did have a sadness when I would see this magnificent painting go into private hands. There was like the sadness of knowing that we in the public wouldn't be able to see it anymore. Wow, I didn't even think about that aspect of, of that. Were you, what else did you, were there things that you saw there that were super intriguing or interesting? So the, again, the Martin Luther King one was great. We had an auction where we auctioned off um, like warehouse pieces from the, um, the Met. 
So there were like all these like strange, like, like butt statue where somebody like bought it for somebody as a joke for their law off. Like, so, so you were like, so there was the Martin Luther King papers and then there was a the butt statue. Right. <laughs> Very different things. Um, you know, there was jewelry sales and the jewels were like, you know, again, like 20 million, like it just these numbers that, that ordinary people like couldn't, you know, I still have law school loans. I, you know, I was still trying to pay off my debt. Um, and there was this other world that, that I got a view into. Then you jumped in hard on, on this stuff with Zaxxas though. Like you, did you like the bridge there was just sort of understanding contracts and, and that stuff, and then kind of jumping into Zaxxas. Were you the GC right away, or were you, did you have yeah, a different they, So I actually, so what WPP used to do, they used to buy companies, and then um, most of the, the uh, legal team used to just go away. So I came in just as the legal team was leaving, um, and then just got thrown into it. I, I basically acted as a GC, but I did have a uh, former attorney on, uh, that I was reporting to basically became my mentor. Um, and he, he actually, as I started working and doing more privacy, he's like, you need to lean into this, which um, I, I listened to him luckily and did. And that, that was your main mentor? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, one of them. Did you come across Axis, Pedro, when you were at Oracle? Don't think so. Don't think so. Um, I'm running through the mental database now. I don't think so. We worked with Blue Kai when Blue oh. Kai just started. Okay, yeah. Well, Blue Kai, for the folks that don't know, was purchased by Oracle. But yeah, I, don't, I think that must have been before I got involved because uh, the name's not ringing a bell. Before you wrote that uh, Blue Kai email that no one read? <laughs> God. Remember that one? God. <laughs> anyway, no guess. <laughs> shout out to shout out to Bert for telling shout you out. that email was too long. Shout out to Bert. Um, I think we talked about it on another episode, but I, I sent this like super formal, like uh, overly loyally email to Blue Kai like a week after acquisition, and uh, my boss at Oracle basically said, "Stop writing like a clown." <laughs> <You know? laughs> Thanks, Bert. Um, so shout out to Bert Kaminsky. We're going to get him on the podcast soon. So uh, anyway, no, so like your mentor tells you to lean into privacy. When is this? So, so I don't know if I, Andy, I don't know if I've ever told you this story. So I started, um, I, when I joined, I sat on the board of the NAI at 24 seven, there was seven of us. It was me. It was Jules. Um, it was, it was Jane Horvath. So it was all these like Titans, like the, I call them like the first, uh, the privacy mafia, like the first group of privacy people. Trevor Hughes was the head of the NAI. You look at this, I just want to pause for a moment. Yeah. We talk about this a lot, but I actually want to raise this because it lends credence to what we say. When we talk about how important marketing and advertising is within the larger context of privacy. Yeah. Jules and Trevor were yeah. in this. In yeah. the, these people are two of the leading voices in all of privacy. Yeah. That Trevor is the CEO of the IPP and Jules is the CEO of FPF, the main think tank in privacy. So like, we're not joking around. Like it's, it's true. No, it really like it, right. We, we started in two, I mean, this was 2008 and this is when they already, the ad tech industry already had scrutiny on it. Um, and it just blew over when when Google wanted to when DoubleClick at the time, sorry, wanted to buy Abacus and join the non-PII with the PII. And so that's when that's the beginning of when again I came in and privacy was blowing up again. Good timer. Yeah, yeah. What was the Abacus? Sorry, Andrew. for people that don't know, what was Abacus? So so Abacus. Um, Abacus was a company that had offline PII data. So, you know, data collected from in-store catalogs. Um, so they had like true, like Andy, you know, likes uh, to buy from Godiva. So they knew your name, your address. They probably knew your phone number. Um, and then DoubleClick was at the time the leading ad server. So they were serving ads to websites. So they wanted to marry the two, right? You go on a website, they're going to then link that back to your name, your address, things like that. 
was there any rule barring that? No. No was other there than any rules like were there five rule. Yeah, there was no and I think actually today, Andy, there's I was thinking of this that what's your argument now for not merging those two data sets? I think it's if anything, if you look at CCPA and GDPR, they took away all the incentive to not do that. We talked about this at DataZoom at length myself and the CEO when the GDPR was happening. And he was just like, I just think it's this GDPR, I get it, but it's removing all of the incentive to yeah. do that. He yeah. said, we've, we've crossed the Rubicon into first party data land and he was right. That was, year, that was several years ago at this point. Yeah, I actually, um, I went to, I don't know if I ever told you this story, I went to a website and uh, it was for a museum here in the city, a small museum and was looking at their, their schedule. And then like a week later, I got a mailing asking for donations. And I knew right away, I was like, I know exactly what you did. Um, but, but I don't know if you know this. So when I went, I worked, I was chief privacy officer of Epsilon and Abacus was bought by Epsilon. So I ended up being the chief privacy officer of the, of Abacus. Full circle. Yeah. Pretty cool. What's the, uh, What's the hardest privacy, or let me say it this way, what is the biggest privacy crisis you've worked on, whether it's at a job or kind of in like the collaborative like uh, organizational sense? Like what made you lose sleep? What's in the last few years? <laughs> For me, um, definitely when just joining any organization, trying to organize it and bring it up to date, um, especially existing organizations, like that was really difficult. Um, and Ampersand, for instance, I'm, we're just building out our technology. So I'm able to like implement things right away and just build it out that way. But when you go to a, a set organization, whether 24 seven or Epsilon, you know, they've, they've been working a certain way for so many years. And then all of a sudden you have you know, GDPR, CCPA, and you have to like shift people's thinking to a new mindset and that at times I, I I found I'm sure you guys did too. I mean with GDPR it's it's literally at one point I was like are we shutting down our European business because GDPR is going into effect next week and industry doesn't have its its policy done yet. I'll never forget a phone call I had in 2017. Our mutual friend Eve Philip who was the <clears throat> at the time was the, I guess, head of privacy or associate deputy general counsel or something at Rubicon Project said, having this call with this vendor called PageFair, would you sit in on it? Because the, the Rubicon was the supply side and DataZoo was the demand side and we worked together a lot. And she said, will you just listen in and, and then discuss with me what happens? And we got on the phone with this this vendor and we all, we, we all know who PageFair is now, but like back then we didn't. And they were like, at one point, they just, they just said something like, um, like, you know, if you're, if you're, you're the demand side, basically you're buying ads and you, you'll never get any, you won't get any data back after you purchase an ad. And I said, well, but how would we, how would we, like, how, what would, how would we tell our advertiser anything? Like, how would we tell our customer anything? They would, they would, they would not know anything about what they did. And they said, yeah, I mean, that, that's just, that's what the GDPR says. And I said, so I'm a demand side business. Should I leave Europe? And there was this pause and they just said, yes. <gasps> and I just said, and I said, okay, well, this call's over. And I got off the phone and, uh, and, and it didn't, I always felt after that call that it wouldn't play out the way they dictated that it would and completely return to contextual targeting although that that may happen they may happen someday but it, it's not happened yet the market power is still too powerful wow. and the advertising dollar is still too powerful for that to have happened um but i just it's not it's not they weren't wrong in the sense of, of what the law kind of says at all but, and Andy, like that, you know, going back to your question, Pedro, like another like shift was probably back in like 2010, I think, when the the cookie directive came out, there was like this like panic 
Um, you know, and we thought we needed consent then for cookies. And that's what outside counsel, they're like, you need consent, that's an end of story. And and again, I I, I called up my, my guys, you know, here's my outside counsel telling me one thing. And I call up my guys in France. I'm like, guys, are we like, do you see people getting consent? What's the story? Nobody was. So that's, that's the other caveat. Like, I, I do feel like we see like these like, hiccups come up, like a cookie directive, you know, not, not hiccups, like, you know, like a, a, a speed bump and we have to figure out how to address it. So e-cookie directive, GDPR, CCPA, now, now with uh, the standard contractual clauses, like every time there's a hiccup, it's, it's so essential to talk to others in the field and, and have those connections. This is not, you can't do this in like a silo and try to decide this, e even with outside counsel, it's not enough to, to be making these decisions. History repeats itself. It's, it's the same situation with CCPA and the concept of sale of data and applied to advertising. Like it's, it's there's a lot of lack of clarity. Yeah. I, 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 my favorite example more recently is like Privacy Shield and Safe Harbor and the apocalypse that they were supposed to bring when invalidated and everybody woke up the next day and nothing had changed. Everything was working exactly the same. And we just had to do our paperwork differently, right? Like that's really all that changed. Well, not true. There were some, uh, let's just say operational changes that came along with it, but most of it was just paperwork sh shuffles, right? Like, okay, well, instead of putting the privacy shield documents on the left side of the desk, we're going to put the Put them on the right side of the desk over here like that you know like it's my usual question but like you know who's made safer by any of this other than you know or not safer whose privacy is preserved or improved by any of this and i'm not sure i just i'm not convinced especially not in the last five years that any of these noga, noga made this there's a relevant point like the 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 encouragement towards first party data away from a cookie or away from something that is truly not not identifying a person but identifying a device is an interesting change to that effect like right. that's weird yeah and i think the hyper focus on first party data actually i think creates dark rooms i think it creates processing spaces that are not as visible because you can't see them they're happening behind you know someone's corporate walls you know so like i don't know and I think people have a harder time giving up some of those services, you know, they like the idea of giving up your social media account because you don't agree with that dark space is much harder, I think, than, than people realize. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, uh, to that end, though, let me ask you this, like, because you've been at this a long time. Like, you guys are so old. No, well, Andy, yeah. Andy was like, you've been in privacy for 20 years, right? And I'm like, I <laughs> mean. Practicing for well, two years. <laughs> that was my mistake. My mistake then, because we are basically the same age. So <laughs> it's my it's my mistake. <laughs> well, but you've been in ad tech longer than us. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm teasing him. I don't. I, I, uh, my, your ten years at the NAI is twenty years. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, we went to see a, a, a bridge, the, a dam in New York. And they said it was built in 1906. And my eight-year-old goes, so how old were you then? Were you a kid? And I'm like, seriously, man? <laughs> anyway, Pedro, go ahead. I don't even remember. I, what, were, there, were there cookies in 1906 back when you were you know, doing the thing? Let's make a call. Can you call a friend on your fancy phone and find out? Was Hold it on. Was it time travel calls? Um, no, but... <laughs> You know, but I'll ask, I think I remember what I was going to ask you, which is like, Andy and I have been doing this podcast now for, for a little bit, and we've done, yeah, Andy, I don't know how many episodes, but we've done enough now that I've seen themes and hearing themes. And a lot of the focus of a lot of conversation is, the, is in the context of the relationship between practitioners, us on these, on these podcasts, um, the companies or law firms we work for, or the regulators. We don't talk a lot about data subjects. We talk about things that happen to data subjects, but we don't discuss the data subjects themselves very often. Over time, have you noticed like either increased public interest, engagement and action in the privacy space? Has it stayed the same? Do you think people still don't care? I mean, just the point you just made about how sticky social media is and how hard it is to give it up. Is that why people don't give it up? 
or is it because this isn't that big a deal and it's all of us making a bunch of fuss when the people actually involved uh, don't care as much like what's your thought on that what do you see any patterns whatever yeah so it was interesting i went to a iepp leadership summit where there were like 70 privacy people so these are privacy people in the room and they they said okay whoever is on facebook whoever's not on facebook like step out whoever's not on instagram step out so so they every so they didn't include linkedin so they they said everybody on linkedin can stay in out of i think I, again it was like a big number of people only four people stepped out of so only four people weren't on facebook it was i was just i mean these are privacy people right and when they asked people, why are you not on Facebook out of the four, they said, because, you know, nobody said it was because of privacy reason. They all said because they got bullied or something happened. And I was like a little shocked, like, Pedro, it's not, people are comfortable putting things out there. I think it's become more norm, more, more, they're getting used to it. So even looking at privacy, people look, nobody brought up privacy as a reason why they're not on Facebook. That is such a good example. And I agree anecdotally with your experiment in the sense of overwhelmingly the feedback I hear when I hear I, I drop social media or I'm doing, a, you know, I got off social media, Facebook, whatever. It's always like content detox, too much information, wasting my time. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, it's not productive. I, I'm mad at my grandma. It's never like I'm really concerned about the, you know, uh, profiling that Facebook is doing. I, I never hear that from the public. It's only civil society and practitioners and regulators. Yeah. And so I wonder, are we like out of touch? Are we like gov trying to govern something and put all these resources into something that maybe, you know, I think it was Larry Page or whoever, but maybe these guys are right. Like, it's just not that big a deal. I'm not saying I agree with that, but just. So I, I do think, so I, one, one thing that did change my mind and cause I, I was like questioning, I was like, do people really care? And I, I don't remember which social media app it was, but they had the ability to like pinpoint your location and broadcast it. Snapchat. People, yeah. Oh, Snapchat. And people freaked out. So I'm like, there, there is a line and I think it's our job to figure out that line. But having said that, I said this to Andy, we are in such a weird position. I, I feel so uncomfortable making these decisions for people, but we are. Yeah. Right? I, We're making I'm in, decisions yeah, for people. I totally agree with you. And I remember when Snapchat came out with the, you know, I don't remember what they call the feature, but like my friends, you could log in and you could see little like uh, avatars of all your friends and where they are on this map. And there was all this outrage for like five minutes. People still use it though. Snapchat is honestly as popular as ever right now. It might be more quietly popular, um, but young people use Snapchat. Like there's, there are young people in my life, cousins, whatever. I that's the only place I can talk to them on. Right? Like, they're, they're like, why are you texting me? I don't, I don't even look at iMessage. Like I don't do that. Like my iMessage is turned off. You know, it's like it's just they live in this little world, and they're gonna grow up to be adults. All of this is normalized for them. Um, I love the way you said that because it I, I, internally i i feel the same way like like feel i don't even think that it's not about like i'm logically going through these steps and come to the same conclusion i feel exactly how you said you you feel which is i am less and less comfortable making sweeping decisions or recommendations um, about what is appropriate from a privacy perspective, because I look around at the people who we're protecting and they're the ones who should be setting the tone if we live in a free society and they're sending us the signal that it's not that big a deal by the way they behave, right? Yeah, again, it's the message I'm getting, Pedro, is almost that, and this is such a horrible message, that, that people can't manage it and they don't know how to do things and therefore we have to do it for them. That's and I don't, I don't agree with, I, 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 again, really struggle with that. And I, you see that in advertising guidelines also where certain ads are not allowed. Um, and it could be something that you and I think are, is kind of innocuous, like, um, like a fortune teller, like, you know, is it right to, to have the ad for the fortune teller that charges 10 minutes, some, you know, $10 a minute? Like, is it, or is that preying on vulnerable people or like, 
so so when what what's the line how do we make those decisions is it fair for us to even make those decisions i there are times where i'm like this is this is crazy i can't believe we've gone this far that you're asking me to make those decisions for my yeah. company yeah and i think there are some specific groups which we certainly need to protect right children come to mind immediately right like protecting children's online privacy is important because they don't have the capacity to make decisions about what their preferences are people with mental disabilities whatever a mental illness whatever i totally get that i don't think i should be setting privacy norms for a you know 45 year old white male you know harvard grad i you know, I, I feel like they, they've got enough capacity to figure out for themselves with that said though you're right like where is the place where we strike this balance between holding people responsible for some, you know, for their preferences in a space that's pretty technical and difficult to yeah. understand and you have to invest a lot of time into to really get and then there's a time value kind of equation that has to go into all of this because the harms aren't so clear. Um, versus, you know, a free for all, which obviously, uh, you know, that we, that's not good either. So right. I don't know, Andy, Andy, you're over there going deep in thought, man. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you could tell. What, you, what, you, what you're saying is very interesting to me. I mean, it applies beyond advertising. It's just simply any data subject, any person, uh, in, in our case with Alice, maybe it's, it's a B2B business, you know, engage someone trying to engage with somebody on a B2B business transaction, trying to set up a meeting. Well, like I don't view it necessarily as, um, making decisions for that, that person. I, I think our job is to, understand our own technology, understand what we're trying to do and create controls for those people and create a space for them to exercise control in a way in which they can understand what it is that they're exercising. And that that's not easy. And so I, I don't say that to, to say that, oh, well, this is, we should just be like, you know, doing all this Facebook, for example, Instagram, uh, Google, there are privacy controls. Not everyone knows like how to use them, how to find them. They, they, there are lots of privacy controls. LinkedIn, all these platforms have them. They're available to people. And what we need to be doing, in my view, is doing a better job of explaining and doing a better job of talking about what, what data is being used for what and letting someone delete their data if they want to delete it and correcting it if they want to correct it and showing them the data that we have and saying like, this is what it is. It's not, I, so I view it more as, and I'm thinking a lot about what you, you're both saying because it's interesting. And I think um, maybe it's simplistic, but I just think our view is to make that conversation better. Like privacy policies are a joke. I mean, they're just laughable unreadable i'm right i'm you know i look at them i write them and i think to myself there's got to be a better way but, but andy when you're drafting the privacy policies i i mean you know that's just a simple example right the the point really is to tell the consumer or the data subject or the user whatever you want you know whatever that person is in that instance here's the data here's what we're collecting here's what we're using it for but I know for myself in the back of my mind when I'm drafting privacy policies, I'm like, what are the regulators going to say? What are they, you know? So, so again, there's that, that balance. And, and I think a lot of times we're drafting this more as attorneys that. Do you think, do you think a regulatory perspective, like, do you think a regulator is looking at your privacy policy? Or are they looking at what they can prove that you actually did or didn't do? Didn't do. You know, you bring up a good point, both of you, and particularly Pedro around COPPA, where there are fines and there are actual enforcement based on, uh, and we've seen that. Uh, we've seen enforcement around COPPA. Like it's, it's the marrying of the privacy policy and the activities that are happening that aren't supposed to be happening, right? But, but Andy, you know, even, so let's go to COPPA, like Ro Roblox or like TikTok or Snapchat. You know what, guys? My my, I'm not on those. My kids are, yeah. right? And I'm like, my kid, uh, my twelve year old at the time opened up an Instagram account. I had no idea, right? They're lying. Like, how do you, as a company, how do you stop kids from like, right? Who are the who's the the data subject there? It is a kid, 
But how do you stop? Lying and misrepresenting their age and they're jumping on the platforms and then now it's on the platform to develop some kind of solution. Identify when someone's lying about their age, right? Like it's super complicated. Not that I would know anything about this topic, (laughs) right? But like, you know, it's complicated. Now you got to invest a ton of money to just catch the kids who's Parents have no idea. Maybe it's not their fault. To your point, like it's not your fault. Your kids are messing around on their phone, and you don't see it. And then, um, and the kids are lying because that's what kids do. Like you know, it's not like you're a bad kid. I would have done the same thing times ten, right? You know, I would have called myself Abraham Lincoln until I was born, and you know, whatever. Um, but let me let me let me let me bring this back to to ad tech really quick because I love this topic. Like ad tech gets a lot of attention about privacy, it's not just the social media companies, it's third party, it's the advertisers, it's everybody. There's a lot of attention, regulatory attention, a lot of media attention, building all these profiles, using people's behavioral information, capitalist surveillance, all this stuff, or surveillance capitalism, all this stuff. I honestly think that part of the reason that ad tech is under the most scrutiny is because it's an easy target. It's easy because no one's going to say to the person, the civil society organization or the regulator attacking ad tech, hey, leave them alone. They're doing something cool, right? It's always like, yeah, who cares? It's advertisements, go after them. No one's chasing the medical industry and all the crazy ways they're using data to try to unpack that mess and see where GDPR intersect, you know, CCPA intersect with all of the stuff that's happening, happening, uh, with data subject information in the medical context. I'm sure there are some folks, but it's not on the front page of the New York Times every day or the Wall Street Journal all the time. Now, flip it to governments. I don't hear a lot of talk about uh, enforcing meaningful norms against governments other than the uh, Privacy Shield uh, uh, Safe Harbor debacle, but we know that that's political. That's not actually about preserving people's privacy. That's another, you know, another complicated mess. So why doesn't anybody attack the medical industry in earnest? Why doesn't anyone attack the government surveillance apparatus in earnest? Meaning all the way as strong with as many resources, with as much energy as they do ad tech. I think it's because the other two can punch back pretty hard where ad tech has to absorb a lot of it. Like I couldn't imagine, uh, you know, allegations against a massive social media company where the social media company says, well, screw you. Like social media is the best thing ever. And it, it's the most important thing. Like that's just not an argument you have to, you, you can make. Um, I don't know. I also think um, issues get conflated sometimes. So people hate advertising, for instance, and they, they blame privacy. So they, you know, they'll install the ad blocker and say it's for privacy reasons. Yeah. I think but, still, but, but I agree with you. It's less about the privacy and it's more about the nuisance of the advertisement as the driver, right? Like, you know, I definitely can tell you that's what motivated me to, you know, turn off a lot of advertising on my devices. It's like, I just don't want to see the ad. I want to get to the content. No, but that's what motivates a lot of individuals to turn things off, right? Like, um, but then when you think about it, you're like, well, I'm actually uh, making that content less likely to be high quality because the advertisement is what's paying for the content, right? I can think all of that through because I live and work in this industry, but like, you know, average person just, it's not that they don't have the ability. It's just that it's not in their realm of consciousness, right? Like, right, but then then look at what the browsers are doing, mm-hmm. right? So then I'm watching the browsers make decisions for users and, and do, you know, have do not track on by default or like, you know, block third party cookies. And I'm like, again, why are you making decisions for, for everyone? subjects for everybody like is that is that really what people are concerned about it's the cookies like like really or is it like like following me everywhere i go like for me pedro it's like like all joking aside like i brought this but like the reality is like this follows me everywhere like they you know my husband actually i i I don't know if i told you so my husband knows what has my uh location he's we share a location with each other it's a very uncomfortable feeling and that's my spouse. Yeah, Not I totally agree with you. Then, <laughs> yeah, and then, but Apple knows it at all times, right? Exactly, and then right? the ad, the, the apps that you give access to it know it, and it goes way beyond, like way beyond advertising, right? Like, yeah. and so like the demonization of the ad industry to me has just always been interesting. Spoiler alert on his location for the last seven months, home. 
<laughs> I know, I know. You know, pre this, my, 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 and this is so silly. Like the, my nervousness with sharing information with my husband was like, I go into a store and he know I'm shopping. So. <laughs> like obviously you're in a happy marriage but like maybe yeah. in a not so happy marriage you've got that feature on and you go meet with a divorce lawyer or you know whatever like people do things that don't necessarily want to share with their spouse but i think at an even more complicated level like why does starbucks need to know <laughs> like you know i mean i understand why an advertiser would want to know your locations and get you an ad that but why does starbucks need to know right like why so, so pedro going back to it though i think i know one of the things i have seen is that we make a mistake in ad tech and then i hate to say we tend to repeat it um it's an industry that you see a lot of new startups come in um you know like the flashlight app like you know they got dinged for collecting your location like why did they need that and then now today, if you go look, like th there's like 10 flashlight apps and they're collecting your, your voice and you're like, my, you know, like all these crazy things where you're like, did we not learn? So I do blame, and it's ad tech, you know, being like the apps, the websites, the third parties, whatever it is. Like I blame all of us at times for, for making mistakes that, you know, maybe we should have known better. But I guess the location, and back to the, and I I clearly, you, uh, we're uncomfortable with the location stuff. I know I am personally, but most people, are they? Are they really uncomfortable? Like, yeah. we, we, you know, yeah. what makes it a mistake, right? Like, is there actual harm? Like, you know, what, do people perceive their flashlight app knowing where they are as a bad thing, as a good thing? I think it all depends on context, you know? I, we're I, used I, to I, harm. We're so used to harm, right? You know, go to law school, learn about damages and we're used to that analysis and I think people are not, you know, and so they, they feel it. It feels visceral. They feel retargeting. It feels like, oh, it's so annoying. Like I, I looked at that pair of shoes and, and now, you know, I'm reading an article and there it is again. And, and people like us get annoyed when I already converted and I still see the shoes, you know? And so it's like, I already bought your shoes or I, or I bought a different pair of shoes. You should know, you know, the machine should know. And I think we're not, it's a really tough problem uh, to, to get to a place where we feel like we can make, um, make these things uh, feel comfortable for, for the consumer or the user. Like they, they will always have some level of discomfort with something or another. And so that's why I always fall back on trying I know it's not perfect. I just fall back on trying to make the disclosures that we make better because they're just, they're like, I know, I know that they're often written for a regulator, but they can also be written for a person. I mean, there are companies that do a nice job with it and they, they can always do better. I think those in the, when you post this, maybe link a couple of those examples. Cause I'm curious to see what you consider a good. I'll give you two, I'll give you two that I look at Twitter. Okay. Twitter's privacy policy. Now, like it's still a privacy policy, it, it, you know, a, a cat still has stripes, but, but it's, it's, it's better. It's more absorbable, more readable. It's, it's clear about what data they're processing in what context. Um, it's pretty good. Um, I like Twitter too, Andy, but I'll say this. Some of the things that Twitter makes really clear are things that are still legally ambiguous. Right. Does that make sense? Like, it's not, they're, they're saying, here's how we're using the data and we're doing it for this purpose. It's not totally clear that that's kosher with the law. Right. So, and I'm not picking on Twitter. I agree that it is a good policy and I've used it as an example before. Uh, but that goes back to the point of you can write a really clear policy. If the rules aren't clear themselves, then you're not sure that what you're telling people is even compliant with the law and people have to make decisions about what they share with you based on what you're telling them, because no consumer is going to go read the CCPA. They're just going to go read. If they read anything, they're going to read, maybe read your privacy statement. One thing, um, yeah, that's a good point, Pedro. One thing that's within our control is our own documents and our own DPAs and our own relationships with customers, um, especially in B2B SaaS, you know, and Salesforce, um, your, you know, your former company like Noga and I have talked about this separately from you, that DPA that Salesforce you know, put out into the world, um, it mimics Salesforce's approach to dealing with customers. 
like it's fair yeah, and I'm we can do that you know it's not it's not like like easily readable or, or legible for someone that's not an attorney or not a privacy person looking at it but it is what it is it's a dpa it's clear it lays out who's doing what and it's it's not uh ambiguous in that sense but when you attach and i'm proud of that dpa and I, it was great before i got there and i feel like we improved it while i was there with that said it's 30 some odd documents when you, pages when you include all of the appendix and all of the nonsense at your tables that you have to attach to it. And it looks good from a Western centric US slash EU perspective. Yeah. Look at it from a Chinese perspective. Look at it from a Brazilian perspective, right? Like I'm not saying that it's inadequate. I'm saying those discussions are underway at Salesforce, right? Like how do you make this one document be a cohesive, understanding of all of these rules um, that apply to us at the same time in different jurisdictions. That's Nike, Nike did it. I've seen it. It's a hundred pages. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Microsoft's like DPA documentation is, is a, you know, is an encyclopedia. They're, they've taken I'm not criticizing it. They've tried to go, a, you know, kitchen sink approach. Um, and, and, you know, we'll just have to see how that all plays out anyway. I, don't know. I think the trick will be DPA privacy policy done via TikTok or a movie, <laughs> maybe like with dramatic reading. We've uh, gotta, we've, there's got to be a better way. We've got to find a better way. Right? Uh, I, I always say, I, and I know I've told you this, like, and I, I know Pedro doesn't like this idea, but like if you, if you align with like a set of principles, just having like that little logo on your page, like, I comply with the NAI code, let's say, and you just have the NAI code and that way the consumer knows you're complying with these seven principles, whatever those seven principles are. We might have to get that aligned with the federal privacy law. Like, I don't think that's wrong. I think like it would need real widespread. We're all, I'm all fan of self-reg in, in, in the ad tech space, certainly, but it just, you know, the consumer doesn't have enough adoption there in terms of knowing about it. So, so Andy, so my biggest fear with the federal privacy law is if they do some sort of like fiduciary duty or some sort of like murky requirement where, again, I have to figure out what's my fiduciary duty to the data subject. And one of the things that I saw from the ICO, for instance, I, I, I think I spoke to you guys about this, was this idea that dieting ads because they hurt the data subjects feelings are sensitive like diet a diet segment is a sensitive segment and i was like oh my god now i have to like figure out what's going to hurt people's feelings like is that a part of my fiduciary duty it's just what so does that have to do with privacy right like i'm, I'm not being facetious like literally what does that have to do with privacy you know, who it's sensitive to the consumer. It's private to them that they want to go, that they've gone on a diet and now you've sent them an ad and now they're embarrassed and they think somebody out there knows that they're dieting. And the reality is like the algorithm knows, but that doesn't mean somebody within my company knows that I, you know, I've gone to dieting sites. Yeah. In fact, most companies, if they're doing this right, don't know who you actually are. Right? And they don't care. I know. I know. Yeah. So again, yeah, but again, uh, translating this to the consumer is really difficult. And then saying to the regulator, we know that Pedro's hurt because his feelings are hurt about the dieting ad, um, but we don't even know who he is. So what are you asking us to do, right? Like, right. Uh, you know, what, what is the action? Not advertise to Pedro that, or not do dieting ads? Well, that industry is entitled to speech too. And it's entitled to- and, and you're still, still going to get an ad when you visit that dieting site. It's just exactly. ad anyway. And it's going to be, you know, for something diet related or not. But, but guys, like, how would I know what, like, that's not going to hurt my feelings, the dieting ad, because you know what, like, I'm looking at keto now. I'm on the dieting site, it's like keto recipe or whatever, which I can't, by the way, keep it. That's a side point. I'm going to get a keto ad. I, I, I like, ad. Is and, that going to hurt you, my feelings? I, they don't know. From, Do you yeah, know. And if you switch from behavioral targeting to context, you're going to get the keto ad. Like, yeah. So yeah. Like, what do you want the world to do, right? So, so unless someone's willing to say, well, advertising all in and of itself is bad and all advertising should be dumb and we should go back to, you know, billboards on the streets that nobody, you know, can target or just on the highway. Like, I just don't understand what the solution is. 
Well, that is page fairs. That is page fairs position. Page fairs position. Uh, others like that. And, you know, far be it for me to say someone shouldn't have that position. They can, but um, it is what it is. And probably, and I say what I always say, the market power is too strong for that to happen. I think that's right. No, no I'm going to take a, we got a, we got a, sorry, I know we got to drop, but I want to ask Noko one more question because um, I really am interested in your perspective on this issue. Are we doing a good job in our industry um, with respect to uh, uh, women leading and being in charge and setting the tone? I mean, you, I think of you as kind of like an OG in the, in the so you see this, right? So tell me, are we doing a good job? Reference. Yeah, what can we do better? Like, how do we get better so women have, get, make the same, have the same opportunities and, uh, and you know, whatever, you know what I'm talking about. Pedro, you know what? Privacy, when I, like, when in 2008, like, it was so nice. It was really, I would say, 60% women, 40% men. It was a quiet industry almost. It didn't have the flash and the sexiness that it has today, but women were 60% of the leaders. I would say now that that number has gone more 50-50, and I do things because the salaries are going up. Like, it, it's it's attracting men more to the field. So I, I would say to you, like, you know, women do need the support. You don't want that number to drop below 50. Um, I, I was an M&A attorney. We, we had 50% of the associates were women. We had one woman partner. And I did a, a round table with M&A attorneys. So this is like a month ago, guys. There wasn't one woman in there. And I just, I was like, my God, things haven't changed in that field. Like that's terrifying to me. And I don't want that to happen to the privacy field. So I'd say wherever you can, you know, hire, hire a female intern if you can, like do what you can to help, you know, keep the numbers at least even, because it, it is important. And I would say diversity in general, like you, you need those voices, not just women, not just men, like the, the diverse voices, this is, this should not be driven just by by one race or one gender. I'm glad you said that because back to the point about uh, privacy professionals, regulators, and um, practitioners listening more, right? This is that that's the point I'm I was trying to make earlier, kind of not very well, which is we need to listen to the people we're trying to protect to make sure we're doing what they want us to do. Yeah. Um, I love what you just said now, which is making sure that that when we open our ears and eyes to observe, to try to figure out how to do our jobs, that the people we're watching and listening uh, to are diverse. I, I think that is a really important, you know, uh, point to make. I'm glad you made it. And um, yeah, we need to do better. Yeah, we do. 100% we do. And by the way, I don't normally dress this way. This is an 80s shirt. <laughs> ask something about the weird shirt I'm wearing. Don't, don't stop believing. Don't stop believing, man. <laughs> Noga, you're the best. Thank you. The best. Pleasure. All right. Thanks. Thanks. So, Noga, you hang up, and we'll do like a intro thing. Thank, thank you, guys. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, talk to you soon. Talk to you soon.